Let's go ahead and get started. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we particularly thank you for the comfort that we find in these passages, these two passages mainly that we're going to look at today. Lord, I pray again, Lord, that you would protect us from superstition and silliness, from spiritualism, but Lord, we would be focused on the gift that you have given us, and Lord, realize that you know what you're doing even when we don't. Lord, I pray that you would bless our study tonight, that you would lead us, guide us, protect us from error. In Jesus' name, amen. Just in the way of a little review, remember that we defined angels. We used, uh, when we began, we used Wayne Grudem's uh, definition as angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Just this week, uh, there was someone that, that uh, I knew who had a child that passed away, and on Facebook, that there were probably 20 comments that were something along the lines of, God needed another na- angel, so they took little, um, the little boy home. And I thought to myself, oh, why do I even teach? Um, but we know that angels were created beings. You or I or that baby are never going to become angels. That angels were created, that they were given moral abilities, which moral judgment, which means that some of the angels fell. Some of the angels didn't. They were able to make a choice. Um, and they had, were given high intelligence. But that generally speaking, they do not have physical bodies. Now, as we have looked at the Old Testament, we saw that angels had the ability when on a mission from God to take on a physical body. And the angels that fell, some of them took on a, a, their, a physical body. So we know that that's a, that is something that angels can do. I want us to... To, just to set ourselves up, since last week we finished our Old Testament study of angels, and this week we're going to pick up in the New Testament, I want us to understand a little bit about the difference between Old Testament and New Testament theologies. One of the principles that we believe is that God and Jesus are the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change in Him. There is, there is nothing, no, no, no shadow of turning There's nothing different about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. If you go to, uh, if you study theology, there is a theory uh, that is highly unscriptural that says that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament is full of grace and mercy. That is absolute heresy from the pits of hell. That God is the same. Now, that doesn't mean that God chose to reveal everything at one time. In the Old Testament, this is the way that St. Augustine put it, and I've always liked this. The new is in the old concealed. Everything that we see in the New Testament, we can find those principles in the Old Testament. They're just concealed. They're, the, 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 what Jesus did, his sacrificial uh, atonement for us, is, is revealed in the Old Testament. We see that in the sacrificial system there. It's just concealed. So the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so we see the importance of Old Testament theology to feed into New Testament theology. I learned uh, when I went to, uh, was going to become a missionary, we, Ann and I went to Richmond, Virginia for three months of training. And one of the things that we learned how to do is called creation to Christ, where you, when you meet a person and you, who has never been exposed to the Bible and you start to tell them God's story, you need to kind of 
fill them in before you just jump off the boat and say, oh, hey, there's this guy named Jesus, and he was a sacrifice. Wait, what's a sacrifice? What's that for? And so we learned, in fact, uh, myself and some of our teammates wrote a book that we, we called um, God's Story is Revealed in the Bible or something along those lines, and, and all it did was took the stories from the Old Testament, and we picked about 22 of them, and just they were in one page, and they had some art on, on one side so that you could hand that to somebody, and they could read it and see the story from creation all the way to Christ. Um, and so the Old Testament is important for us to backfill our knowledge. And as we come to the subject of angels, it was important for us to see that in the Old Testament, there was a, a, a very clear break between the idea of an angel of the Lord, a, an angel that, that God sent to do a specific job, to do a specific task, and the angel of the Lord. And so for the last three or four months as we've gone through this, I've tried to argue and I've tried to show from God's Word that the angel of the Lord is in fact a Christophany, that it's Jesus before he was incarnate. So, we saw in the Old Testament that one of the jobs of angels is to protect. We see in Psalm 34, 6-8, the poor men cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So we see that angels are keeping watch over people who fear God, who are calling on the name of the Lord, that angels have a role in protection. We see the same thing in Psalm 91. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So here we see in Psalm 91, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, because you've, you've, you have leaned on God for, for his assistance, that he will use his angels to protect you. I mean, how many times have in your life you had a situation where you couldn't find your keys as you were going out the door, and then you found them, and you got in your car, and you're going down I-59, and three minutes in front of you, there's a terrible wreck, and the missing of your keys held you up for three minutes. Or uh, I heard, uh, read a story about a, a, a church that always had their choir practice on Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock. Everybody was almost always on time, and this particular night, for some unknown reason, Nobody was there at 6 o'clock, and there was an accident, and the church was destroyed at 6 o'clock, and nobody was injured. Those kind of things tell me that angels are still at work. And God sometimes uses angels, sometimes God uses people, sometimes God uses circumstances. God can do whatever He wants to do. One of the things that I, I remember very well throughout my life that always calls me is the idea that I can sleep because the Lord is not sleeping. He is watching over me. And whenever I get super stressed and I think, and I, you know, I, I've shared with you guys my heart, when, when things get harem scarum, I'm the kind of guy that I have to fix it. 
I've, if it means that I'm staying up all night, I got to do it. If it means that I got to, I got to do what I got to do. Come on, let's knock this out. And, and God, I think that that's a blessing that my father and mother trained me that way, and that that God uh, put that in my character. But at the same time, there are times when it's what God is calling on me to do is nothing except calling on His name and let Him handle it. And that idea that the Lord encamps His angels around us, that God has got things He doesn't need me is both humbling and comforting. So in the Old Testament, we saw this kind of general idea that angels are our protectors. Well, in the New Testament, that's kind of widened out. So if you would like, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I want us to kind of do a little bit of work to establish the context because whenever we're studying a a scriptural passage, we know that the context rules whenever we're studying, that uh, we don't study a text without understanding the context. And so this particular story starts in 18.1. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I, somebody should preach on this sort of, sort of a text. I think that would be a good idea. And calling to him a child, he put that child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus here is using a child, and again, just as I taught on Sunday, that context of a child is, and you notice Jesus twice talks about humility, is that in the eyes of the culture, a child had no value. A child was uh, not, until they came of age, uh, was considered no better, better than a slave. They were valueless. And so when Jesus sets this child amongst them and, say, and says, and truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is talking about here is the humility to realize exactly what we were just saying. That it ain't about you. It ain't about me. It's about God receiving the honor and the glory. It's about God doing what God wants to do. I'm a bit actor in God's play. God is the one who is the protagonist in this story, not me. And if you can have the humility to realize that and realize that it's about him, that frees you up. And, and I've, shared, I've shared with you guys that when we, were in, when we were in Turkey, the feeling of there are six and a half million people in this city who don't know about Jesus... And it's my responsibility to tell them about Jesus could be crushing. And the realization that, well, I've been here for three and a half, four years, and nobody's gotten saved could make you feel like a failure. But it was the daily struggle of saying, what I'm supposed to do is what God's called me to do, and my obedience is my victory, not the results. Some water, some sow, but it's God who brings the increase. In the life of this church, if I came in here every Sunday morning and stood at that pulpit and looked around the audience and felt like it was my responsibility to fill these pews and it was my responsibility to make people walk down the aisle, that could be crushing. That could be something that could destroy you. I, the, I was an associate pastor in a church in Coleman that I, I, I was told the story that um, the pastor gave, preached his heart out, gave an altar call, and nobody came. And, you know, it was one of those, we've all been in that service where the altar call is on the, now the 16th verse of just as I am. Um, 
you know, if, if anybody here, seriously, anybody is come forward and he got so frustrated that he literally looked at his congregation and said, y'all can all go to hell and marched out the back door of the church. And, and that was his resignation because he felt like he'd poured his heart out for this church and they were just, all right, what time are we going to lunch? Well, that didn't happen overnight. That kind of frustration came from a man who felt like it was his job to do that. And so Jesus is here saying, no, 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 no. The whole thing about being a Christian is realizing that it's about God and not me. And unless you become like a child. So he continues through these, these parables and these little snippets of teaching to use the child as um, what we need to be like. That if we're going to be children of God, and I know that that term is used on, for, on purpose, that we have to be like a child. And so when we get to, to, to um, verse 10, he's still, the little kid is still sitting there. He said, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. As I said, it was, he's talking first of all about the, the, the kid, because kids had no value. But he's also in the context of this talking about those children of God who have believed. We know that because he does say up here, uh, talking about belief. And he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels, their angels, always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. No. So let's stop. What does this tell us? Well, first of all, where are the angels residing in this point of Jesus? They're in heaven. They're looking on the Father's face. But their angels, the children's angels that Jesus is talking about, they see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, Is Jesus here talking about children or about people who have become like a child and believed? And I think in the context, if you study, read all of chapter 18, in fact, even going into the next uh, couple of parables, he's still talking about conflict within the church context. I think he's talking about both. So I think the answer is yes. He's talking about little children. And if you think about it, theologically speaking, a child who has not yet reached the age of accountability, when they die, what happens to that child? Biblically speaking, they go straight into the arms of God. Um, People who have believed in the name of Jesus and they have gotten saved and they have called on the name of the Lord, When they die, where do they go? They go to heaven. Now, I'm not just saying that babies go to heaven because I think that that's sweet and that's altruistic. Remember the story when the baby that was conceived from David's sin with Bathsheba got sick. And David uh, is in, in mourning and he is in sackcloth and ashes and he's praying for the life of that baby. So much so that when the baby dies, his servants stand outside the door and they go, go tell him that the baby's dead. And the servant says, I ain't telling him, you tell it. Because 
One of the servants say, if he's this upset when the baby's sick, what is this man going to do when he finds out that the baby's dead? So I don't know if they flipped a coin, what they did. They rock, paper, scissors. Um, Yes, and David knew how to use a sword. He was not someone to be trifled with. So they go in, they tell David. Well, David gets up, goes, takes a shower, puts some cologne on, gets in the, and the, to the point that the servants are so shocked by this behavior, he go, they go to David and say, why are you acting like this? And David said, I, uh, the baby cannot come to me, so there's no point in me praying anymore. But I will go to that baby. That is clear biblical indication to me that David knew and was inspired by the Holy Spirit that he knew that that infant was going to go to Christ, that that infant was going to go home. So, here, as Jesus is talking about offending uh, children, I think that the idea is, not, and we're talking constantly in this text about offense. The very next paragraph starts talking about un, being unforgiving. And what to do if a brother sins against you. So we're talking here about conflict and people not getting along. This is a very clear warning to not take advantage of people and just not worry about if I hurt somebody's feelings who can't do anything for me. That child, like we talked about on Sunday, who can't do anything to help me, he's just just a child, that we can't do that as believers. That's not an attitude we take. I, I will tell you, I can tell a whole lot about a person by how they treat a waitress, the janitor, how they treat somebody that in their mind, they can't really do anything for them. If somebody is dismissive and rude to a waitress or a waiter, that tells me that that person in their heart is a jerk. I was at a, a, a restaurant, this was six, eight months ago, in fact, I think I've used it as a sermon illustration, um, and this dude was obnoxious to the waiter. Uh, we were in a, the Chinese restaurant after church, and he was rude. He was obnoxious. Nothing was to his liking. He didn't like the food. He didn't like the glass. It had something on it. He thought it, the, and people were being too loud, and he was just obnoxious. And he had his church bulletin folded up and put in his pocket. And so his church bulletin, and I know what church he was at, was sticking out of his pocket. And everything in me wanted to go up to that man and say, if you want to be a jerk, be a jerk, but could you please take that bulletin and take it out of your pocket so that you don't make the rest of Christianity look like a bunch of idiots because you're acting like an idiot. I have heard, now I don't know if this is true or not, that when Nick Saban begins recruiting someone, uh, and I had someone who, who would, would have firsthand knowledge, and I was actually questioning why uh, the guy that was at Florida State had not been recruited by, by Nick Saban. Uh, and this person told me that what that they do when they're recruiting, when they get somebody's name, they've looked at film, they like the person, they will go talk to the lunchroom lady and the janitors of that school to do a character study. How does that young man treat the janitors and the lunchroom ladies? And if he's obnoxious to those people, then we're not going to pursue him. So here we see Jesus saying, giving us the same advice. Here's this child can't do anything for you. Don't, don't be obnoxious to them. Don't remember that there are angels in heaven looking at the Father, that they're protected. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that God is the husband of the widow and that God is the father of the orphan. 
And here we see that spelled out with angels. I also believe that this is talking about believers, people who have been, become like a child and they have confessed their sins, they have humbled themselves before a holy God, and they are now a believer. That we're not to just roll over them because we can. That we're to remember what their standing is before God. That they are an adopted son or daughter of God. And so there's so often that we get into conflict in church over stuff that does not matter. It doesn't matter a heel of beans. And we get all sideways about it. And you know what? I'm not just pointing fingers. I do the same thing. If we're in a deacon's meeting and somebody brings up doing something that I don't want to do, I get my, my feathers ruffled. Well, I, I don't want to do it that way. Now, I will say that just about every time that that happens, I've got the Holy Spirit sitting on my back saying, shut your mouth. And I know, I know that church is not about my likes and dislikes, but it's a fellowship of people who the only thing we have in common is Jesus. And I love that about the church, that I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing a pretty broad demographic. And some of you, I would have absolutely nothing in common with. We're from different socioeconomic strata. We're, we are different ec- ec- uh, educational levels. We're, we come from different places, different ages, so that your experiences are different than mine. But we love each other, not because we naturally would be buddies together, but we love each other because we have a common Savior. And we know that we're all desperately wicked who can know us, and God has saved us. But here we see clearly, as we, within the context of our study of angels, that we as believers... Now, I don't necessarily think that we each have an assigned angel. I, I, think, I think that that's stretching the text too far. But I think that we have angels that are watching over us as believers, and they are standing before a holy God. And I know that the idea, what the idea of offense is talking about, because again, in the context... He talks in verses 7 through 9 about dealing with sin. If somebody's come up and sinned against you or you've sinned against them. And then in verse 15 he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him you're his fault. And so I know here that he's, what he's dealing with, he's dealing with conflict. And he's saying, remember that their angel is in heaven gazing at the face of the Father and that you have to treat them within that respect. It's the same thing that I preach Sunday that when I'm dealing with other people, I treat them, consider others better than yourself. And then when I look at my own heart, I realize the wickedness and evilness of my own heart. So, we see in the Old Testament that angels are protectors. And in the New Testament, in Matthew 18, we see that we specifically have angels that are assigned to us. The second thing that I see, and this is a great comfort to, to me in this uh, today... It was awesome that I was kind of preparing this and I was able to share this today around someone's deathbed. In Luke 16, we read a story that's typically used a lot in, in, when, when we are telling other people about how to get saved, about Jesus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So this man had nothing. In the eyes of the culture, he had no value. The poor man died. 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus and his side. So here we see two different men dying. One was a believer, and the moment that he died, he was met with angels that carried him to paradise. The rich man died and was just buried. And in hell lifted his eyes up being in torment. So here we see one of the specific jobs of angels at work. I've shared with you guys many times because it was such a a defining moment in in the early part of my ministry at this church when Wendy Robertson... um, was passing away, and I had the privilege of walking with her through that journey. And I remember it was probably about um, two days before she died. Um, she called me and uh, left a voicemail message that said, I-, I need to talk to you. So I went over to her, her house and said, Wendy, what's going on? And she said, um, I'm a bad Christian. I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And she said, I believe that the Bible tells me that I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm so afraid. That any time we face the unknown, it is scary. And what more can be unknown than crossing over the Jordan when we die? And so here we see this picture that when our last breath is taken and our spirit departs this body... Isn't it a beautiful picture that there are angels standing there going, come on, let's go home. And so we see here a very specific gift that God gives his children. The rich man didn't have that. But here one of the children of God had angels that were waiting to to take him to paradise. And so today... As I sat in the room with a man of God who's lived his life for the Lord, I was able to pray... um, You know, thank you, God. Thank you for a life well lived. And I was able to look his wife in the face and say, when he goes, when he takes that last breath, all the pain will be gone. The air that he breathes will be celestial, as the old hymn says. Just think of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of touching a hand and finding it's God's. Of crossing the shore and finding that I'm home. That's what we have to wait for us. There's nothing to fear with that dark veil. I'm not saying that when you're there, there won't be questions. There won't be, and I will say with Wendy, that at that last moment as she went home, she wasn't afraid anymore. God had given her the grace and the peace. She was ready to go. I've never seen, I've never seen, and I've sat in the room Easily with 50 people as they've gone home. I've never seen a Christian struggle. I've always seen them go in peace. So we see here that angels have that job. 